Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back. It's Thursday. And man, if you missed last night, you missed one of the best parties of the year. One of the best parties that I've been to virtual or otherwise. And I just wanted to say thanks to all the folks from Clean Energy for Biden and all of you who volunteered and who participated, who bought a ticket, who took my advice and came to what I think was the best networking event that we've had all year, the Clean Energy Inaugural Ball. It was amazing. If you missed it, you can check out photos and the lineup at cleanenergyforbiden.com forward slash ball. I'm just so grateful for Jigger Shaw and Andrea Lukey. Lynn Abramson, and so many more leaders, including the entire co-chair team from Clean Energy for Biden, who helped make this thing a reality. And thank you to all of you, Solar Warriors, who showed up, who answered the call, and who stood tall and had fun last night. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, this is a big family. Clean Energy is a big family. The Suncast Tribe is a big family. And the guy that is gracing the stage here on Suncast today is a big old man, and he's a big part of the Suncast family. He was on the red carpet last night, if you missed it, at the Clean Energy inaugural ball. His name is Andy Klump, and Andy holds the current and longstanding record of most downloads, most downloaded episode on Suncast. That's right. Coming in at more than 2,000 downloads, I think, now for his episode. Uh, It still stands as the episode that keeps getting referred to and downloaded the most. And I wanted to have Andy back because there's a lot about this man's life and the way that he ended up in China and ended up being a trusted resource in Asia for so many companies and individuals like myself around the world from Europe to the Americas. I wanted to hear how he came about this venture called CEA. And I wanted to hear how he built through this adventure of living in China, having a wonderful family, being an upright citizen, all around good guy. So today we dig into the man that is Andy Klump, not just how he built his business, but how he's built his career. And I hope that you would come to admire this man as much as I do. Yes, I've got a bit of a man crush on Mr. Andy Klump. Not afraid to admit it. He's a good friend and he's a very good businessman. I hope that you learn as much as I did in today's episode. And if you want a really funny throwback picture, I don't know if we made it into the cover art, but we'll for sure throw it up on the blog. The funniest picture from Solar Fight Night 2018, Mr. Andy Klump and I duking it out. It's a funny picture, so go check out the blog at mysuncast.com. Hey, while you're there, you can check out so many more, more than 350 episodes of other Amazing leaders, founders, startup advice, and insights at mysuncast.com. But for now, 
I hope that you will tune in and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, because this one sure is a doozy. Let's dive in here on Suncast. Well, well, Solar Warriors, every now and again, we get to touch the garments of greatness here on Suncast. And for those of you who, for whatever reason, maybe it's your first episode, or maybe you start at the end and work your way backwards as you discover more and more gems in the Suncast canon, you haven't listened to episode 120 yet. Well, let me tell you, you've missed what is still to this day, the top downloaded episode of all time on Suncast. And because I love you and I don't want you to miss out on greatness, I've asked Andy Klump, founder and CEO of Clean Energy Associates, to come back and do a round two here on Suncast. So Andy, thank you. This time is a little different. Last time we were in a hotel in Anaheim, enjoying the fresh air of being able to socialize together. <laughs> Welcome back to Suncast, my friend. Absolutely. Look, Nico, uh, it is just a joy and a pleasure to uh, to talk with you today. And yes, I do remember that time uh, intimately two plus years ago. Uh, it's always fun to meet in person, but mm-hmm. in today's life, we uh, we have to evolve. So uh, we're doing this virtually and it's always uh, always great to see you. And before you jump in, I have to say, yeah. I am such a, a huge fan of, uh, of your fantastic work at Suncast. I've been a faithful listener the last three plus years and have uh, listened to every episode. So you're one of my top three go-to podcasts. Super excited about all the amazing work you're doing for the industry and uh, other entrepreneurs like myself that, uh, that need the inspiration. So yeah. happy to be here today. Thank you. There are a lot of things that I've learned from you, and I think we're going to take a chance in this episode. Most folks are used to the origin story. If you want that episode, it's a great one. There's a reason why I think that it's a great episode is the reason why it's the top downloaded. However, I may at the end come back and ask, what are all the wonderful things you did to self-promote and make sure that your episode reigns supreme in the Suncast canon? (laughs) But I'm going to take some time here and just explore a bunch of the stuff that I often think about when I think about exploring ideas with someone I really admire, someone who's been in the trenches that I don't often get to ask because it would take three hours in an interview. And so I'm going to throw some questions at you in this interview that are different ones and some that I've introduced that I didn't use back in the first hundred and something episodes. We're at 325 or so now at the time of this recording. So as we are sort of reveling in and, and steeping in the what we expect to be anticipation and joy of a Biden administration, there's a ton of stuff that I know I'm going to be sort of industry-wise obligated to ask you, and I'm happy to. You're a veritable expert in supply chain, in quality. Why don't you, for the sake of your soon-to-be fans, those who maybe don't know you yet, why don't you give us some insight into what exactly you are doing in China? What kept you in the People's Republic instead of coming back to the United States? Feel free to weave in there you know, the, the elevator pitch of SIA as well. So uh, Clean Energy Associates, just for all of you who don't know, uh, we are a global technical advisory company that provides comprehensive engineering solutions in the solar and storage industries. And our core work does include a lot of work in Asia, which is why I'm based here. And so, as you know, Nico, I've been in living and working in China, starting my 18th year of business. 
Uh, just last week, we actually celebrated our 12th year of anniversary of, uh, of CEA. We are now you know, starting year 13, mm-hmm. and we do a lot of work around upstream supply chain. Quality assurance requires a lot of work in the factories, a lot of meetings with uh, executives of major uh, solar and storage equipment manufacturers that are based in Asia. But we also have a, a growing and burgeoning business in uh, independent engineering and owners engineering uh, in our uh, engineering teams in the U.S. And so we actually have 40 plus team members in the U.S. We have 70 plus in Asia and 135 professionals in the entire company, which is more than double what we had uh, the last time we spoke. So uh, it's it's great to see the growth in the last two plus years. But uh, to answer the question, uh, it's extremely important to be in Asia because uh, the supply, we're in an industry that's driven by supply chain uh, trends and developments, and that is what has allowed the solar industry to expand the level it has is because of uh, declining costs from optimized supply chains. And that's why every uh, CEO of an IPP or asset owner of solar storage assets, they need to have a portion of their brain which is allocated to supply chain. And that's where uh, Clean Energy Associates has been a trust advisor for many of the leading IPPs. Our uh, our aggregate market cap of our clients is actually over two point eight trillion. So um, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's also another statistic that uh, we've we crossed a pretty big milestone this year as well. That's so. Super. To answer your question, I I'm, I while I am uh, a U.S. citizen uh, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I do um, I do reside in China, but uh, during 2020, I actually spent uh, I was stuck outside of uh, China and Indonesia when the initial uh, episode happened with uh, COVID-19, yeah. and then spent six plus months in the U.S. But yes, I've now returned to Shanghai, and that's where I am right now. The listeners will probably quickly pick up that we're good buds, and uh, if you haven't had a chance to see the uh, the cover art for this episode, for whatever reason, you should check it out. It's one of my favorite pictures of all time. Daniel Deuce it's to, says it lives in the lore of Solar Fight Club memory. Uh, and if you're a fan of Mike Tyson's punch out, it's our version of Little Joe and Mike Tyson, because Andy's a hulking, what, six, seven? Uh, no, six, six, five. Just a, six, six, five. five. Oh, that means Hanky's taller than you. Wow. <laughs> So there's a, bu- there's a bunch of really tall dudes in the industry, Daniel Deuce, Matt Hankey, yourself. And I love being five, four and a half on a good day. I love hanging out with all you guys. It reminds me of my football days. So I loved the picture that you sent. It was so sweet of your family uh, going back to China. And, uh, and it was a precursor because you went back to China about a week, I think, ahead of when we came back to the U.S. We were both messaging each other like, How's the travel going? What are your plans? How's your prep? Um, and I'm getting ready to go uh, in, in short order here to Colorado to visit one of the companies that I advise. Um, so uh, you've, you've been ahead of me in travels all this year. It's been an interesting year for all of us. So we've, uh, we've grown, evolved, and we've become more resilient as an industry. Yeah. So I think a lot of positive things have come from, uh, from this uh, COVID-19 environment. Andy, you mentioned that you grew up in flyover country. What did your parents do? So my father spent 44 years as a taxi cab driver, and my mother was uh, was a homemaker for a while, but she was a teacher prior to that. So mm-hmm. you know, pretty much a blue collar working family with uh, you know electricians, plumbers, uh, carpenters, and the like. That was kind of my my family origin. Any any entrepreneurs? A taxi driver is in many ways an entrepreneur. Did you get that entrepreneurial bug from your family? 
So I did not set up my, so my first entrepreneurial uh, venture uh, was, uh, was Handy Andy's uh, landscaping services. Uh, I know landscaping is too complex. I, I just said lawn care. Uh, I was, uh, I was just focused on um, not being an entrepreneur. I was focused on how can I earn a buck to pay for my education? So yeah. that, um, that decision that high school happened. Or college? Uh, that, was, uh, that was actually, so in grade school, my mother uh, approached me and said, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate to uh, have you in a, a nice Catholic school education. It was fairly low cost, but uh, as we looked at high school, we, we just can't afford it. Wow. And so I had been helping my dad since the time I was eight could operate a lawnmower. Uh, yeah. He uh, had me work with him on a Saturday, just mowing a lawn. And so I just said, all right, well, I'm going to start cutting grass because working Did five you... bucks an hour at McDonald's was not going to save enough money, but uh, cutting grass was, was what I got into. You and make I just good helped money. Grow Did that. you really call it Handy Andy's? It was handy. So I, uh, the day after my mom told me that, uh, you know, we couldn't, she couldn't afford to, to, you know, with her, um, my mom and my dad couldn't afford to pay for high school. I, I, I went out to Target. I bought a 29 cent piece of uh, cardboard or uh, poster board. I just, I, I got a, a business card, just measured it and just started cutting. And I made handy no Andy's a landscape lawn care services and, uh, handmade my, cards. Uh, my, my handmade cards. I put on uh, two smiley face stickers and Dude, I made uh, a whole, this explains a, a, a so much of your of grit. This explains so much of your grit, your customers. You ought to send this to your customers. This is a part of who you are, man. I've seen this, Andy, in the halls of conferences, man. That is the kind of frugality that you want from the CEO of a company that's going to hold your quality assurance in his hands, right? That's amazing. I didn't know that story, dude. Absolutely. And so when I, um, I, I passed out all the cards uh, but one, and from that initial batch, uh, I kept that one card as just a reminder uh, from where I started. And I'll tell you, I, I went to 20, I knocked on 20 doors that next day, and oh, I, had, uh, I had 100% rejection. So I said, okay, I just need to keep going. And so that first year, I started as a 12-year-old. Uh, I ended up with three customers. One was my second grade uh, teacher. And oh, wow. uh, from That's that, great. you know, three... Uh, those three customers just kept doubling every year. And, you know, after uh, six, seven years, I'd not only helped to pay off high school, but I uh, had a good amount of money saved up for college. And I used mm -hmm. all of that with grants and everything else to uh, scrap my way through Northwestern. Uh, so I still wow. keep that one card. And, do you? I was going to uh, ask uh, if you have it. Yeah. I, you have to send me. I, I do you have, a, have it? Do you know where it is? I want to see a picture of it. I, uh, I actually have it in St. Louis. Uh, so I've got uh -huh. to uh, find it with my mom. But um I, uh, I used, I used that last card when I was applying to business school and I, I only applied to one business school and I said, look, I I'm going to, if there's ever time to just put it out there, I did. So it was the last year that they accepted handwritten applications. So I, I literally cut and pasted it on the top of my application. And then I, just, I went to admissions after I got in and they said, uh, and yeah, we actually still have it. I was like, can, can I have kind of my card back? So, what a uh, story. so it, is, uh, it is sitting, sitting at home in St. Louis. So you mentioned Northwestern, you mentioned B-School. What career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? Growing up as a kid, I always had wanderlust. And the, the, the one magazine my parents had on a weekly basis come in, or monthly basis, was National Geographic. And I just would always look at it cover to cover. And so I always said, wow. I, I just immediately launched on this idea of just, wow, I'd love to go international. And, but Nico, mm. in a perspective, like, 
my my one big uh, vacation each year was going to Boy Scout camp. And oh, yeah. uh, I'm an Eagle Scout, um, but every summer I would do that because we just didn't take vacations. It was uh, an 80-mile drive to see my grandmother in rural Missouri, and that was uh, that was the extent of our family trips because my dad was uh, was just always working. But through National Geographic, I always thought well, I wanted to see the world. But I also developed this belief in uh, sustainability and seeing what was going on around the world, maybe appreciate globally uh, how amazing the you know, so many different experiences could be. And I, I just wanted to, to see the world, but also help uh, protect the world. And so the path I didn't go down, which I probably would have, was uh, was something along the lines of being a, a photojournalist uh, for National wow. Geographic, exploring the world. So I've created a different path now that CAs work with clients in over 50, uh, 57 countries now, or we've had our client projects or clients in 57 markets. Um, I, I indirectly am uh, exploring and seeing the world but through the lens of uh, solar and storage. Yeah, and part of your job is to take lots of photos. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Inadvertently fulfilling that a... goal. Correct, correct. You, you, you're, you're fulfilling like the geek's version of that goal because while you probably were thinking travel, outdoors, photography, any kid growing up rebuilding computers and reading Wired Magazine, you're living, you're living their dream. Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, I, um, I, I will say, uh, and, and once again, it's not myself doing uh, a lot of this. It's uh, the amazing team of over 90 inspectors and engineers uh, at CA, you know, taking uh, photos and inspections in factories, but also yeah. doing, a, you know, EL inspection in the field and exploring many different types of defects and trying to avoid, uh, you know, more, yeah. more, uh, more, more technical challenges that, uh, that are happening in, in a variety of rooftops. Uh, solar field installations throughout the world. You know, there are a lot of forks in the road in our career. And when I first interviewed it, I didn't realize how much of a career podcast Suncast was becoming, just satisfying my own craving to better understand how people have crafted the marvelous lives they're leading and built the teams that are really transforming our energy landscape. So I like to reflect as often as I can with folks who will let me what opportunities were you offered that you're glad you turned down? Oh, boy. There were uh, a ton of offers uh, that I received on the early days when I was at Trina Solar. And once again, in the context, I have to paint the picture. So I, I joined Trina back in 2006 because before, I knew one of the investors. Before anybody knew what Trina was. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Trina was a, uh, a tier three manufacturer that uh, had a just a horrible website uh, yeah. with a lot of uh, English mistakes. Hor and horrible logo just, as well, uh, as I recall. <laughs> oh, exactly. It was it was a horrible, uh, horrible logo. Uh, didn't make uh, green and it just looked disgusting. But Trina had a lot of potential. And I saw that with a CEO and Mr. Yeah. Gao, uh, as you know, uh, mm -hmm. time didn't speak any English. He wow. was uh, a brilliant man. I had a chance to get his PhD at, uh, at Berkeley, turned it down to be an entrepreneur in, in China. But I saw how internationally minded he was and how uh, the company, if we could really build this international culture within the, the company, could really accomplish a lot. And so I made the decision to join Trina back when um, no one knew them. And then we just, we, we built things, uh, we built everything from scratch. And so part of it was rebuilding the website, but it was a long process of just recruiting uh, great A players, uh, really at, at very low levels of the company, but just, you know, rebuilding systems and processes yeah. 
that uh, that never existed. And to put Trina in that international stage, one of the steps was uh, to go through the IPO. So at the time, and uh, you know, six months into my my role at Trina as the head of business development, I was uh, I was on the IPO deal team. I was very visible in the industry. I was on all earnings calls in my two plus years there, and uh, speaking at various conferences. So I had a lot of uh, job offers and opportunities. Uh, at one time, there was a uh, uh, a company in Norcross, Georgia, Cineva, that actually gave yeah. me an offer to uh, to lead their uh, their business development effort. Uh, at the time, it was uh, John Baumstark, yeah. who was uh, touting their new uh, singer, uh, their new cell technology that was going to be a game changer. And I, I, I specifically remember that being one of the offers I was given, but there are many I, uh, countless other folks that approached me, and I'm glad I said it, no to every one of those. And isn't it funny how? About. Isn't it funny how you and Damiani's path crossed again, the years and yes, years later? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very much That's so. A, Very well, much insider so. baseball there. Ben Damiani from uh, Solar Inventions, and, or is good friends with Saya and, and Andy, and he was one of the inventors of the technology that made Saniva Saniva. So you've been doing this for 12 years now. Uh, congratulations again. I think that's a remarkable uh, milestone. I think it's three years, five years is the average uh, death of, a, of an entrepreneurial venture, a long and slow one for most. What would you say now as an entrepreneur or a leader is your number one headache? So my number one you know, limitation to our growth is, uh, is people. So uh, talent by far is the most challenging issue to deal with at my current, um, current business. But just in general, I would say, uh, at various inflection points, like that was the, either the cause for a lot of growth and opportunity or the, the limitation, but, yeah. uh, it is still the, uh, the ongoing issue. And I think at the time I started CEA, the challenge was I'm bootstrapping. I don't have any, uh, you know, any, any dollars coming in. I, yeah. I've got to do everything <laughs> at a, on a budget. So, uh, you know, I started with free interns, but you know, as we grew and scaled that we plateaued at various points and it was like, okay, we got a little bit saved in the bank. Then how do we get that next, um, yeah. that next hire? It's super excited about our growth potential in the coming, you know, five, to, five years to a decade, because there's uh, an amazing team that's in place, but it's the best team we've ever had. And so I've seen the fastest and most amazing, amazing growth with the, the current organization, but mm. it still is a limitation because I see new areas for us to expand into. Yeah. And uh, I, I just look at uh, the various services segments that we kind of micro segments we've gone into. It's been all because we've had great people. So I, I'm still just pushing the envelope. Uh, I've got, uh, it's, it's been probably about uh, close to a third of my time on recruiting and team building. Cause that's, wow. uh, and that's probably you have, what, less 25 than what I would positions? like to. You have 25 positions open right so, now. Yeah. We have 20, yeah, correct. We have 25 openings and God, that's 20% uh, of your workforce. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of our, um, one of our key priorities has remained constant the last three years is helping to you know, recruit, train and develop, uh, you know, a, a list of eight players, but we define of only 70% a players as our priority because we know that there's always going to be that 20% that's constantly getting in the door TA, getting them ramped up. And someone is not a true a player until they had a demonstrated track record of two continu you know, continuous successes over the course of two quarters. And so we have some amazing folks who come in the organization, Paul Wormser being one who's now been with us for five years, but Paul was not an A player the first two quarters because it took him a while to get up to speed on our systems and processes. But we absolutely always, always hire for culture. And so mm. we should never, uh, we never compromise on the culture 
you know, screens. And so we are, we also spend a lot of time uh, interviewing and recruiting, but it's a long process, but we, uh, we're, we're very uh, stuck on our processes for a reason. Yeah. Are you an, a Dave Ramsey acolyte in that regard? Like higher, slow? Absolutely. Okay. We yeah, absolutely fire, uh, hire, hire very slow. Uh, there is a, 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 a methodology called the top grading methodology, which uh, oh, oh, we yeah. follow. Mm-hmm. That's kind of been our, our rallying cry. We've uh, we've employed this the last uh, four to five years, and it's been a it's been a huge success. So we continue to find ways to uh, to recruit, and and that's part of the reason where it's just great to have uh, discussions like this because I always encourage people to listen to podcasts yeah. uh, about myself because I'm constantly talking about culture and values as a yeah. differentiator for CA. Can you explain a bit about top grading, and then at what point did at what at what point, either in revenue or in headcount, did top grading make sense for your business? I.e., at what point do you kind of need to be before you can really start to cultivate that into the process as a culture? So, uh, yeah, top grading employs an, a number of uh, of steps, and there's a, a great book called Who. Uh, once again, this methodology is uh, is is set up by uh, you know, Randy Smart and uh, uh, I'm sorry, Brad Smart, but uh, he and his uh, his father actually did uh, a ton of research. They've interviewed you know over you know, eight or ten thousand executives and went through a very very thorough process. So there actually is an official top grading coaching you know session, which I've never been uh, formally trained, but yep. uh, in reading through the book, you see the methodology. And there's various other videos and resources to pull upon them. Mm-hmm. But it's effectively an extremely thorough process. Uh, mul- many folks are employed. You also have the two-on-one sessions. Yeah. And there's also a certain top-rating interview. And uh, we always do this uh, where it's effectively a, a, a walkthrough in someone's entire career and just understanding every facet of, uh, yeah. of the decisions they made going from company to company. And so it's typically a three-plus-hour process just on that one interview alone. But we also have a variety of other steps. Uh, we use a, you know, a, a disc kind of personality index and, and a number of other um, uh, methods to uh, to really understand what is someone's true motivation and what is uh, what does it take for them to to succeed. And so um, you can really dissect a lot. Uh, but it does take many different folks, in, you know, to be involved in the peel the layer of the onion back. And so to answer your second question, I would definitely say at the point that we say we're probably about 50 or 60, we started to, to use some of these, uh, these methods. We just kind of added various layers of, of tweaking and improvements through the years. So, uh, but look, to be honest, I, I wish I would have started from day one because a lot of, if I look at the, the high growth phase we went through from 2012 to 2015, and we kind of grew from roughly you know 10 to 50, we also had a high degree of turnover. And so frankly, had we started back when we were 10, mm then I think I would have had a, a much more successful, stable platform. Uh, so but that's you, why we measure the retention of our team. And I'm very happy we have yeah. just single digit uh, departure of uh, turnover right now. That's amazing, man. Congratulations on that. Do you think that even with a two, three person team that's trying to scale to 10, something like top grading works? Or is it once you've got a steady group of people and you've got managers and you're starting to build out each division is when you need it? How do you... How do you parse that? I, you know, to be honest, I, I think it's more of a of a mindset, and, and uh, it, I, to be honest, if I were to start another company, mm-hmm. I would uh, I Started would deploy this right from the get go. Yeah, Absolutely, very good. Absolutely. The two books so that I, yeah, I the two books that Andy's referring to are called Who and Top Grading. They're both by uh, a father son pair called Brad and Jeff Smart. We'll link to it in the show notes, of course. And it's been recommended by 
a ton of entrepreneurs. It doesn't come up as often as I would expect in a Suncast interview. So I really appreciate you bringing that into the conversation. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's been a couple of years since we have had a chance to really sit down and do this interview. What are you doing differently today that you weren't doing two years ago as a business? So I think one of the the core um, core changes we've we've made is uh, is looking at really how do we as a company you know truly nail our systems and processes. And so I think the biggest game changer we had was uh, deploying our uh, ERP system, and it took mm-hmm. um, it took us a lot longer and a lot much higher budget. I was always warned before yeah. we went into it, but I still said. Back in uh, in 2017, we started looking. In, in 2018, we made the decision. I said we're going to do this, and uh, and so yeah. Uh, today, I'm very pleased that we have a, a system that's not only implemented but it's adopted. And yeah, was it, uh, we actually was there any custom code the, or anything on custom software, or was it off the shelf and you customized it for your business? Uh, so so we use Dell Tech, uh, which is a common uh, common ERP platform for a lot of engineering companies, uh, and so it has you know, th- there are many different op- options that are out there. We felt Dell Tech was the best for our business, and I'm glad we went with uh, that platform. But I think it's more the the overall you know organization structure that we had to create to really deploy this. Um, you know, our, we also brought on a VP of operations, uh, Vinay Gupta, who is uh, a, a phenomenal executive. And uh, he really created the vision, and this project was was uh, was waffling for a little while, and so he just drove it to completion uh, by also setting up a PMO, and uh, the PMO really helped create the the discipline and the cadence to really drive uh, the process throughout the whole organization, and the adoption has been what's successful. P- what's this, PMO this stand part. for? Uh, it's a project management organization, mm-hmm. and okay. that is a uh, extremely important. And not all companies have a, a PMO, but um, for us, we decided it was an important step. Uh, and some actually choose to dismantle it after a period of time. But for us, it was uh, it was crucial to kind of run the most you know critical initiative, uh, which at that time was Dell Tech through this uh, this organization. But uh, Jorge Alvarez, uh, who's also another uh, Sun Edison uh, veteran, is uh, in yeah. the Bay Area. He actually leads our, our PMO, so he joined our team. And has brought uh, a, tr- a tremendous amount of discipline around the, the work we do, uh, because you know we're we're running um, dozens and dozens of projects concurrently, and so once again executing uh, on uh, you know on spec, on time, on budget. You know these are yeah. uh, that's kind of our rallying cry is keeping so, the quality of the work we have high, but just watching the budget and making sure that we have the, the right resources to meet our clients' requirements. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a part of CA that didn't exist two years ago, and I'm very pleased we have it in place. In all the changes, hopefully it's not the same answer, but what turned out better than you expected? Or maybe even in the 12 years, what turned out better than you expected? I would say what is just increasingly, you know, just humbles me and, you know, be humble as part of our core values is just, just the amazing team that we have and uh, how important investing in the culture is absolutely crucial. Uh, and the, the culture of CA, I had, uh, I guess, high hopes when we really pivoted uh, towards uh, the current culture we have, but it has exceeded all of my expectations. So as we talked about before, you know, there are eight core values of CA. Uh, we are family, uh, have fun, unending curiosity, be humble, do the right thing, results matter, own it, and uh, perform above and beyond. And so that um, that those eight values really 
crystallize uh, the six, you know, the, the, or I should say it's both a cause and effect in a lot of ways, but it, it, it drives awareness among our entire team for, you know, what, uh, what decisions to make. And so yeah. there is, um, there is a, uh, a very clear uh, framework we have uh, in a, in a process and a, a playbook, if you will, for our culture. And uh, we really highlight these values on our, our communication cadence, which goes up and down our entire organization. But the culture has, uh, is really what's, what just amazed me is it's taken a life of its own. And we just have an amazing team that's, uh, that's lived this culture from, uh, you know, in, in a very different way. And that, that's been a part of our evolution. And I'll also say I was my own worst enemy. I didn't define this culture up front. And this is, these are not Andy Klump's values. This is a group of 16 of us getting together in 20, early 2016. Uh, at that time, I made, uh, you know, 2015, I did a lot of self-reflection and mm-hmm. made the decision that we were going to, to grow and scale, but in a different way than we've done in the past, rather than by brute force, we're going to do it with systems and processes and culture building. And really 2016 was the start of, a, I would say, a new era in CA's culture. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that's what's led to a lot of our, our, our rapid growth and, uh, and broader success. Before I leave this topic, I'm really curious if there was uh, if you used any sort of methodology or framework, mental model around culture setting, if there's a book that was instrumental or maybe you hired an outside firm to help guide the process. I mean, this is a problem that if you get eight years into the company and it's not, and you don't have the right culture, as you just described, it can be, and it's not about like, it's not the right culture. It's just not the culture that's a good fit now for the company to grow and setting that culture is the foundation that you build the rest of the company on and that you turn it from a good to a great company to quote, uh, you know, to, to heart back to Jim Collins. Is there any, what tools did you use to set that culture? I think this is something a lot of folks struggle with. Absolutely. So um, I think there are a, a variety of, uh, of frameworks and methodologies that are out there. The one that we used and embraced was uh, Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. And mm, if you're yeah. not familiar with the book, uh, Rockefeller Habits 1.0, but uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, when he built his uh, his oil empire, uh, he created a, a framework uh, for all of his companies to follow. And so Vern Harnish uh, studied that. Uh, they created the scaling up framework as kind of version 2.0 of the mm-hmm. Rockefeller Habits. And uh, I read that book and was amazed. And I remember in early 2015, I was trying to implement some of these ideas myself. And it just did not work. It fell flat. I fell flat on my face. Yeah. And knowing it, it, without the right context and uh, ability to really drive the ownership, it, it's just not going to be a success. But that what worked. I did in, in 2015 is I hired, um, I first hired a, a, a personal coach who kind of helped me to reframe myself and realize uh, I, I got to look in the mirror and, and uh, I, I was my own worst enemy and had to yeah. make a lot of changes to myself and my approach. But then I then hired uh, the current uh, approach uh, or coach, uh, Mike Myro, who's an executive coach of 15 plus years at the time. In the last five years, he's the one who really grilled in the, the different processes and methodologies. And we've uh, we built out our executive team. We've uh, really transformed the, the company culture. But it was really with the, the scaling up framework that we managed to succeed. So Is he I a give a lot of uh, kudos coach? to Mike. Uh, he is. Uh, he is. So did you, did you uh, find him his, through the uh, Gazelle's organization? Uh, so I actually I went online. Uh, so I, I read uh, read the book uh, and I went online to the website. I literally just just picked him because uh, he was in uh, in Dallas and I happened to be no in, way. in Dallas, awesome. Dallas at the time. 
And so even though I was uh, based in Shanghai, I was you know, traveling to and from Dallas on occasion because my wife is from there. And so uh, I, I met with him. Uh, he invited me to a, a Vern Harnish conference. I, I met Vern. I met the, the broader coaching organization. I saw the learning opportunity. And I also had joined an organization called uh, Entrepreneurs Organization. And, yeah. and really just really talking with other like-minded entrepreneurs and, and business leaders who've transformed their company, I realized this is exactly the direction that we need to, to do. Uh, CA's had a lot of success, but to, to really be a sustainable and long-term organization with a proper, uh, you know, BHAG uh, of, you know, 20, 25 plus years in, in planning and thinking about the future. Yeah. I had to really double down and, uh, and and transform CA further. And so I'm super glad I made that decision back at that uh, that stage five years ago. For those who are unfamiliar. And, I'll, and also, and also, just to comment further, I, I, the one other thing is, you know, I mean, and, and I, I really invite anyone to, um, you can look at our YouTube channel. You can look at, mm-hmm. uh, I highly recommend anyone to like look at our Glassdoor ratings. And we encourage everyone, you know, we have over 50 ratings from the, the company. And not all of it's positive. Like, look, you yeah. know, some, I know we still have some learnings, but you know, guess what? It's about it's about progress. It's about improvement, yeah. and that's the continuous desire within myself and I think the organization. Like, how do we get better? How do we improve? Yeah. But uh, all these are anonymous ratings of uh, of the company, and I'm very pleased we have uh, a lot of positive things. To, uh, but we also have some things to work on. So that's why we I constantly I reinforce the importance of, of talking up and down the organization. So on a weekly basis, I have what is a, called a 5QI, which came right out of scaling up. That's we right. modified it slightly, but it just essentially asking five questions to at least one team member. And so I can touch 50 team members and have a detailed one-on-one every year. And then I bring these topics to our weekly executive leadership uh, workshop. I encourage my executives at least one person each month. And then I have our director resource do this same thing of one person each year. So we can actually, we got a, we have a metric. We're, we're going to touch 144 folks on the team. And even though we have 135 right now, uh, I know we're going to be growing past the 150 mark in 2021. So uh, our system is growing and evolving, but we're getting those ideas from the team and the team are coming up with great ideas. And that's what's allowed us to to build to the next level. And frankly, Dell Tech was just a, a uh, example from uh, David Penalva, who said, this is what we need to do, and this nice. is why. And I, I listened to him, we followed it, and it's in place now. So the I, great ideas of the team, that's what I give the success to. And once again, that's all rooted in our strong culture. For those who may be lost their way here on the, what's the context, my question to Andy was, what turned out better than you expected? The answer is an absolutely phenomenal one. It's one of the reasons I love talking to you, man, because you're able to thread a line that goes from what turned out better to why it turned out better. I want to dig down a little, just a little bit further here, but I love that you're focused on culture and team, which are inextricably connected, and that you brought it back to Vern. So I don't know if you know TJ Kanchashevsky. I believe you do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. from Innovatus. I do. So TJ is yep, also... Yep. Also a good bud, and he went to work for Vern. TJ didn't know that I'm a huge, like I'm a gigantic Vern Harnish fan and Scaling Up fan. So the first book review I ever did on Suncast was on Scaling Up. It's episode 35. I'll link to it in the show notes for everybody who wants to go check that out. If you want to hear how terrible of a podcaster I was when I first started out, episode 35 was my very first attempt at doing a solo episode. And I was like, well, I'm going to make this one easy. I'm going to do a book review. I chose Scaling Up because... A good buddy of mine, um, Jose Zambrano, who runs Galt Energy down in Mexico, said in his interview somewhere in the 20s, I can't recall exactly the number, that 
the reason Galt was successful was because he had learned from a mentor the principles, the Rockefeller habits, and had read Scaling Up, and he implemented it. And his business was thriving without him dying because he had learned to give people authority and empower them. And he said, my engineering VP runs engineering. It is his business unit. I don't have anything to do with it. And that for me was just like, this was, I guess, four years ago. It blew my mind. I was just like, man, this is really cool. And I read the book and, uh, and it has not only uh, helped his company and yours, it's helped countless companies that I've coached because I introduced what I consider to be the, the precursor to scaling up for smaller companies. I often recommend for my coaching clients that they look at traction and installing what you, it's a lot of what you said, installing that entrepreneur operating system because it's on top of those habits and that organizational system that you can really layer in the Rockefeller habits of an organization that already understands how to organize data. Because if you don't understand how to organize your data, if you don't understand how to work as a team together, which you learn in traction because you install what Gino calls the entrepreneur operating system, then scaling up is hard. Even implementing the system, the one-page business plan is not an easy concept to get right. It takes years. Uh, and folks think they can do it quickly. And in a quarter, you can implement EOS. You can't implement scaling up in a quarter. Completely agree. And, and I've had a lot of friends who've used EOS, and I, uh, I wish I would have uh, been exposed to it sooner because I probably would have jumped into that. But that's, that's where we as a team have measured on a longitudinal basis how we've uh, succeeded. And so as interesting as that we're actually at the five-year point, and there are 40 different uh, tasks within uh, the Rockefeller Habits and we literally, the first year, had done one out of 40. And the second yeah. year was four. And wow. then uh, we jumped to nine and then to 20. But, you know, we actually successfully accomplished uh, 34 this last year. Wow. And so we're actually, uh, we're shooting for all 40 uh, in 2021. And we oh, also right, have man. an organizational health assessment that we followed. And it's been a similar thing to see that similar trajectory. And uh, it's it's fantastic to have tools. Uh, executive coaches can can bring uh, uh, bring accountability. And once again, I'm I'm very fortunate that we've had the the success we've had. I, I don't have an external investor or outside yeah. uh, board. Amazing, I do have self appointed board members that uh, that give me advice and perspective. But but I, having an external executive coach really helps to drive the accountability in right. a different way. And we now have this five-year uh, track record in, in history to, to reflect off of. So completely agree. EOS is a, a great system and uh, happy that, uh, that you recommend that one as well. I, I would certainly endorse it as well. Andy, I could probably do an entire episode. Some listening may think that was an entire episode on this topic, but to tie it all together, are there examples of how instituting this culture and these habits into the fabric of your company have, have been meaningful and yielded results for your clients? I'd actually just highlight some of the results that we've, we've had. So we've actually systematically gone through and created a, uh, a, a net promoter score. Uh, and I, I, I didn't know what NPS meant. Uh, yeah. I remember being asked about this seven, eight years ago, and I, I had to Google it. But uh, it really, in line with a lot of our scaling up improvements, we actually implemented a, a net promoter score uh, for all of our clients. And so I'm very proud to, to remark that we're actually above 80. Whoa. I did not think that was even possible. And that's with a 38% response rate. So uh, we are super excited about the that's level a- of engagement from our clients. Yeah. I get repeated comments uh, from clients that are just blown away at the level of insights and analysis that our team brings to them. But the, the CA 
uh, knowledge of the supply chain and perspective is just really unrivaled in the industry. So I, I get unsolicited uh, comments from clients who just uh, you know highlight uh, folks like James Nagel, Roger Ballion, uh, you know Paul Wormser, and the like. I mean, there's just a, a whole host of folks that are just performing above and beyond at a yeah. variety of uh, variety of engagements. So we're uh, we're really excited we to uh, to see this and, and measure that. So bringing measurement Paul. is important. Yeah, absolutely. Paul's one of the guys who you need to talk to as well. Dude, yeah, I can't believe Another we don't have I... Paul like as a as a pioneer story on here. Um, it's I tell I, it's I, like CEA is like uh, is like next tracker. It's not fair that like I I have to do like a whole series just on your company because of the titans in your company. <laughs> we uh, we are we are getting some uh, some amazing talent, but folks like Paul have been uh, around for for close to four years now. So you know, Paul joining us in 2017 when he did was absolutely a game changer and uh, totally. We're, we're bringing other folks, uh, Dr. Mohan Narayanan, uh, also with 40 years of solar experience, uh, joined us re recently as our director of customer service. So we have a, a number of amazing uh, folks. But actually, another key milestone we passed uh, recently was actually we've been tracking. We have over 1,000 years of solar and storage expertise in the CA wow. team. So that was a, that's a really key a, dude, that's milestone. A bunch of old, that's a bunch of old guys. Come on. That's uh, uh, there. Uh, so, so one of the things I actually highlight, you know, we very much pride ourselves on diversity. So, uh, we actually are, uh, have over 29% uh, women in the company. And if I, uh, have to quote, Congratulations. Abby Hopper, I, I, I mean, it's, uh, I think the C average is 26. So we're actually above the C average in terms of, yeah. uh, female representation at CEA. Uh, but we also have 16 different nationalities, uh, within the company. That's amazing. So we are a very, can, can I ask you a hard question? Let me, I'm going to yes. ask you a hard question. I don't know the answer of the 29% that are female. What's the breakdown at the executive level? So that that's one area we're trying to work on. Uh, I, I will say, uh, you know, it's again at the, at the director level, we have uh, several key directors. They're very key uh, and important in, in us, uh, you know, to our team. So Annika yeah. Geeler, she is, uh, she's one of our directors and part of our leadership team, but she's been with the CA for seven years and wow. seen, she oversees our uh, our team in uh, in EMEA and uh, does a fantastic job. Uh, Carrie Dubronski is um, our director of HR. Uh, she brings 24 plus years of HR experience to us. You know, we have a, a also an amazing head of marketing, uh, Daryl Zeiss. Uh, who Daryl is uh, is is done some amazing. I thought forever that Daryl was not a female. I thought forever. I, it took a long time for me to realize Daryl was a female. Yep. Well. Uh, I learn things constantly from her and she does an amazing job. Uh, mm -hmm. So our, uh, our whole marketing team and effort has just catapulted to uh, amazing parts. I can show you the, the charts. You it's, have some, you have chart. a lot of folks, you know, to be fair, you have a lot of folks that are paradigm busting in their role, um, sort of that are gender role busting as well on your team, because the nature of your job is often out in the field. You mentioned you had 90 people in the field. So I don't want to, you know, bust your chops too hard about what I know you're working on, which is improving the diversity at the executive level. When as a company say, uh, tends to be paradigm busting from a gender roles perspective. Yes. You know, absolutely. Look, we've always, um, we've always focused on how do we bring in the best talent and we've also adapted uh, our environment around how do we bring that, uh, that talent on board. So yeah. we've uh, we've never been constrained by having a big office where he said that you've got to move to Denver, which is where our, our uh, U.S. Right. Uh, you know, primary U.S. office is. We said we want to hire the best in class people wherever they are. Yep. 
we'll find a way to adapt. That's why when COVID-19 happened, everyone shifted to virtual. We were already virtual. Mm -hmm. We were already using Zoom for the last uh, three plus years. So there really wasn't a disruption in our communication plans. I was going to ask this later, man, but I think it fits here. What do you say to those people who have a ton of transferable skills um, and are just constantly getting shut down by the nature of the clean energy industry, which says you must have five years to apply to this job? And I talk to people in oil and gas and high tech all the time who are getting rejected. They're not even getting through the door for interviews, even though they have sterling resumes. My advice to those folks is uh, find a way to get your foot in the door and be creative. We also have the same requirements, and we really absolutely need industry experience in certain, um, you know, in certain positions. Uh, so we, we just can't. Uh, so, but, but there are other positions where we are, we're more flexible. Yeah. And so we absolutely do bend. What's and an example of a position I, where you can't be flexible? I, I mean, so when, when it's when it's requiring like deep like field expertise, we yeah. just we need someone with with field expertise in solar who can help pattern recognition. They have to have yep. solar exactly solar commissioning experience. You can't deviate. Sense. So a lot that of the sense. a lot of the engineering positions they absolutely need solar experience. We can deviate in terms of maybe the type of experience, or you know we can uh, take someone mm-hmm. who has some. O&M experience uh, and, and migrate them into another facet of what we're, we're doing around uh, asset yeah. management, but we just can't, um, but, but you know, there's, if, other, there's other I cases think if someone who's, where we can't be flexible. I think if someone who's doing quality assurance for a major oil concern, they have way more at risk than a solar project manager. And that seems like the kind of person who could over a period of five to six months easily be trained on the kinds of things that they need to be on the lookout for. Are we still at a place in our industry where there just is so little slack in the machine for training that we can't hire folks from outside of the industry? And I'm going to flip it the other way. Like when will we get to the place in the industry where we've built in the ability to bring folks from other industries in and train them up under folks who have five, 10 years of experience, the way that any good journeyman program would do? So look, there, there absolutely are ways to, uh, to bring non-solar expertise to bear within this industry. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I go back and once again, this is getting back to the point about advice, anyone who is passionate about this industry will go off and study and That's research right. and do a yeah. lot of work. They can do seminars, they can do things on the side. There's night schools, there's mm-hmm. programs you can download by YouTube. I did this work before I got into solar and there was very little research in 2006 yeah. when I was trying to get in the industry. There was hardly any research reports, but I could still scrounge up something and just yeah. showing that I'd done that research and literally read, you know, a dozen plus reports, hundreds of pages, like it proved that I could, could, could kind of create my own path. And so oh, that's I love what I you just said, actually, sorry, I'm going to rephrase really what you just said. Oh, sure. Can I just, I'm going to, Paraphrase what you just said, because somebody in our coaching program did exactly what you just said. If you don't have the skill set, do whatever it takes to prove that you are able to achieve the level of, of, uh, of research and work required to, uh, to acquire that skill set in short order and preferably on your own dime to show your prospective hires. Um, Patty, who went through our coaching program in the fall to, to get that sort of side door experience, she didn't have it. She went and interviewed at Poen knowing nothing fundamentally. She has no experience about storage. And they were super impressed, such so that like they're hiring her and you'll know like this is technically really difficult. She's getting hired as a technical proposal writer to help 
a storage company and she has no storage experience. That goes, it just proves your point. She's she literally, Absolutely. she watched every webinar. She read every journal. She steeped herself in the, in the lexicon. And she said, I'm a writer. I think you can teach me the rest. I'll show you that I know how to be resourceful. And I think that's exactly what I try to help folks think about as well. Like you got transferable skills, but you got to show the grit and you got to show the willingness to, to bring something to the table. And even if that something is like, here's what I've already taught myself, how much more could I learn inside of your organization? Yeah. That's absolutely the case. I definitely say that everyone who has the passion, it will come across an interview, but mm -hmm. if they're truly prepared, you go off and research it, ask tough, tough questions. I will, I will say it's shocking how many people I interview who they don't have questions prepared for me that really oh, show boy. they've, uh, they've, and do they've you leave that in research a, and support. It, in an interview role, do you, do you, there's always a moment where you say, what questions do you have for me? Because you want to know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thoughtful they are. I always, yeah. always want to ask, uh, let, let folks ask questions. And many of them just wing it. And they say, oh, I'll ask questions as I go. I'm like, I give you a chance right now. So what, what are your questions? And hmm. just, just the level of uh, preparation they go into the question, you can learn a lot just by that simple yeah. question of what are your questions. You probably know by now that 2021 is gonna be an even bigger and better year than any we've experienced so far by many standards. With forecasts increasing more than 35% in residential solar alone, solar is about to get a lot busier. And I bet your sales force is not quite ready. In part, I'm talking about those humans, but I'm also talking about that software. You know, you're one of them, I bet. Like everyone else in the solar industry, you've used and adopted Salesforce, but probably haven't really begun to leverage it for growth. Are you in shape to scale your solar business on Salesforce? Take Endium's assessment and find out. Just head over to endium.com forward slash solar dash assessment. That's E-N-D-I-E-M dot com forward slash solar dash assessment and get your business up to speed. Well, look, a lot of folks uh, have tuned in because you are an oracle for many of what's happening in China. So I'd love to know what's the news, man? What's happening that we need to be watching out for across the pond? What what surprises uh, are you helping your clients that navigate? There's a lot we can just let's just explore a bit like the Biden administration. Come Absolutely. Up. So look, there, there are a number of, uh, of key trends that are actually happening right now, which are really meaningful that uh, many folks are not aware of. Uh, one, which goes against all uh, convention, is that we're actually in a squeeze on some of the supply chain components. Right. So glass, for example, has doubled in price. And many folks are just shocked to think of cost of solar is always coming down. But hey, guess what? At certain points in time, there is a, a, a price hike. And so yeah. we see a genuine shortage of glass happening right now. There are a few different factors leading to that. One, due to COVID, a lot of projects in, uh, in China were, were pushed off from Q1 to Q2. Uh, but you know, there was roughly you know, 16 to 18 gigawatts that were completed in the first three uh, quarters of uh, 2020. And now there's roughly the exact same amount so it'll be about a 35 gigawatt year this year in China. Yeah. They're all happening in Q4. So all of a sudden, yeah. glass uh, demand for glass has gone up. And then supply, conversely, 
has also been, you know, glass is uh, an industry that is, you know, it's somewhat, you know, carefully controlled. It's, it consumes a lot of energy. And the government's being much more prescriptive about who has licenses to produce glass. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's substitutes out there, right? I mean, the construction industry is growing through a boom right now in China. So solar glass is competing against glass for buildings. Mm. And with a set number of licenses or manufacturers, manufacturing is not able to exceed the levels or to achieve the levels of, to match with demand. So guess what? Price goes up. And I think this is going to continue on, uh, unfortunately, for another quarter or two into 2021. Wow. Uh, we've seen EVA jump in about 60% in price uh, due to the similar you know, you know, pinch. And one of the predictions I'll say in 2021, I do see uh, China finally going back to much higher levels of, uh, of, of, of actual uh, you know, demand, uh, gener- you know, demand mm-hmm. uh, overall. If you look back at the trends in 2017, we had 53 gigawatt market in China, which was off the charts. Yeah. And then it declined dramatically to 40 gigawatts. Uh, 2019 was also a slow year. And then we had COVID in, in 2020. But I think we're, my prediction is uh, we're actually going to see a, a 60 gigawatt market because there are new markets in the entire uh, grid with grid parity dynamic that are opening up in Western China. And that, um, that market will lead to uh, some dramatic, uh, dramatic buying signals. Uh, and I think it's tens wow. of gigawatts so that we're not seeing that in the market today. But the government has kind of been releasing some of the regulatory control and allowing more folks to, uh, to permit and uh, deploy solar. So a 60 gigawatt market in China means the rest of the world is going to be a little more pinched for some of the upstream components. And so this is why it's leading to the glass shortage in the short term. But, you know, we've seen some some aberrations in polysilicon uh, shortages as well. So I think the other key trend to really look out for, and I think this is just a broader impact globally, is really around the trends related to no forced labor legislation in the U.S., Mm -hmm. as well as, uh, you know, carbon content. So I think increasingly there's going to be more and more demand for higher levels of, uh, of scrutiny for, you know, human rights issues, as well as, you know, the overall uh, true, you know, sustainability of the product itself. And so there's a big shift. I know in some manufacturers actually moving manufacturing capacity to Yunnan and Citron areas where there's a lot of hydro. And so you're actually garnering low cost, environmentally friendly sources of energy that are going into the upstream polysilicon wow. and ingoting processes, which are, you know, they require a high degree of, uh, of energy intensity. And so we're seeing more manufacturing going to there. I think there's another uh, five gigawatt cell facility that's going to be located, located in uh, that region in China as well. So there's a lot of low cost sources of energy that are really going to create more of a low carbon footprint. And we've already seen some markets like uh, like France, uh, mm-hmm. with a special incentive and uh, Korea as well. But I think the industry is going to increasingly be looking at that. To reinforce the, the first point I made, the, the no-forced labor legislation of the uh, in the Xinjiang province in, in China, there is a bill right now that has passed the House. It's in the Senate. There's another Senate bill that has uh, some various other provisions. We actually think that this is going to uh, become reality in the next quarter or two in the United States. And I think there's also a chance that this flows even into other countries like Europe. And so there is a absolutely a program that we've uh, we've implemented on behalf of our clients. And we're getting more re- a ton of requests right now for proper traceability. 
and not all suppliers are compliant. I think some of them are. We've actually gone through and having these discussions and reviewing them with uh, with certain suppliers, but there absolutely is uh, is going to be more awareness about there- how to have a more ethical supply chain. Yeah, we were talking about this because some might say, well, who has to worry about this? Well, very directly, uh, I was just talking with one of the big utilities in Texas that issued a big RFP. We, uh, you know, we published that episode um, with CPS Energy December 31st, and they have to think about whether their projects that are going to be delivered in 2021, 2022, 2023 are subject to this potential risk and how to mitigate it. You said there, there's proper traceability for some not for all. Are there any registries that uh, allow folks to check into this or do they have to go through, uh, I hate to say it this way, but they have to go through a company like SAIA to figure this out or like, how's the industry helping to provide visibility into this? So, I mean, just to be clear, you know, clear, you know, once again, I've been living and working in China for, uh, you know, the start of, uh, you know, for 17 plus years. And I have uh, been in, in hundreds of solar facilities and many different facets. I, so I've never seen any cases of, uh, of child labor or uh, yeah. as a forced labor component in anything that mm-hmm. I've seen. So I'm not I'm not saying that this exists in China, right. but uh, the chance there are certain uh, re-education camps that are in uh, you know, the Xinjiang part, uh, portion of China, and there are certain steps in the value chain where there could be some manual labor that potentially could come from that, uh, that camp. And I also say, as a third-party inspector, one can't necessarily access certain regions to go validate this. Right. But uh, what we can do is there are other regions outside of Xinjiang province where we can travel openly and go validate the various steps. So the, the reality is there is not a clear register that, uh, that does exist. And while many suppliers will say, oh yeah, we don't have an, uh, any, any compliance issues here, um, they don't have any proof and they don't have, uh, you know, it's gonna, they're, they're not independent third party. So right. this is the work that, that CEA is, uh, it has, uh, has documented and uh, is doing. So yeah. um, this is an area where mm. uh, we're getting more requests and we've even seen some leading organizations say uh, they're going to jump out ahead of this and really be leading the charge. So, and also Essentially comment, saying, make sure just, that we don't have content coming from cor- this. Region. Correct. Correct. And yeah. it's, uh, I think it's just a, a small group of IPPs and developers, but we're actually speaking wow. with, um, with well, small group companies. Down. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I also say it's not just, um, it's not just the folks in the industry developing projects or deploying projects. It's the folks who are buying the energy, and that's where the that's RE100 right. is playing a role. And we've talked with a number of the major, uh, you know, leaders in the RE100, and they are aware of this. And once yeah, again, like I Reba say that we work with <laughs> Reba would also correct, have a voice correct. in this. Absolutely. So look, there's, there's, uh, as I mentioned before, with our clients having a 2.8 trillion dollar market cap. So I mean, there, there are a lot of large companies we work with. They're entirely on top of this as well. So uh, CA is, uh, has continued to be a leader. And uh, because we are in China, we have such a large presence, we're, uh, we're able to pull off um, a, a broader traceability check and, uh, and there will be ongoing inspection. That's the one piece of our business model that's been clearly reinforced through the years is just yeah. you can't just do a one-time check. And we've also talked to other folks that uh, run aerial photography and have looked at a lot of uh, of, of gigawatts of projects from the air. And uh, the common theme they'll say is, look, you need to have someone who's actually there as a third party inspector doing this work on an ongoing mm-hmm. basis. So 
So it's not just a once and done, check the box and you're, and you're finished. This is a high volume manufacturing process, but it does require ongoing inspection and, and, and evaluation. So that this all sounds great. It's awesome to get your insight because you see what's happening from a shortage perspective with glass and EVA, huge China demand, the NFL, which I wrongly mistook when our conversations to be the actual NFL, not no forced labor. If somebody in uh, supply chain is talking to you about NFL, they are not likely uh, in the next coming months talking about the football organization, just heads up. The no forced labor <laughs> regulations that might be uh, coming down the pike and, and the UCS just are coming down the pike. Carbon content. If I'm sitting in the procurement seat for any company really, but for someone who has to think about securing product for Q1 to Q3 of 2021, what do you think poses the biggest risk for supply chain? I would actually build off of that comment. It's not just the next few quarters one needs to be thinking about. It's just the broader theme of 21 through 23. And there's a, a truckload of projects that are trying to get through the mm -hmm. pipeline. There is going to be a shortage of capacity at some point in time over this three-year period. Short term, that may not be a, an issue for someone buying in Q1 or Q2, but um, I think as we get deeper into the the 22-23 period, absolutely, there, there's mm -hmm. going to be issues. So the question is that I would give to someone who's in a procurement role is like, do you have a, a diversified supply chain? Do you have key partners? And I say partners with an S, mm -hmm. where there are multiple folks you can rely on and they're not going to get caught in, uh, in shortages due to whatever constraints. Uh, and I, I will say I've talked to, or talked to folks who told me from, and we've experienced this with ourselves, with our, our clients who've had changes among the big five who've given a verbal commitment and backed mm -hmm. out, or they've had supply chain changes. So how confident are you in the executive relationships that you have with those suppliers? And that's where we are. We're conducting uh, virtual tours right now with our teams where we're actually going in person to meet with uh, senior executives at some of their supply chain partners and with them on the phone because they can't travel to China easily. We're actually yeah. having these executive level discussions. Uh, we're doing some of this in terms of bilingual translation because at some of these companies, the, the top executive doesn't speak English fluently. So right. uh, that's part of the value we bring to the table. And that's, um, that's why right now, even though I'm back in China, I'm, uh, I'm doing a lot of travel interaction within the supply chain in China and really helping our key partners solidify those relationships and further prepare for the coming uh, crunch in the next few, uh, next few years. See, Andy's literally taking one for the team because that means he's got a quarantine from his beautiful family uh, so that he can help the solar industry have better insight. I just want you guys to understand uh, the real implications of the commitment of the of the team and, and Andy in particular. So what I heard you saying there is over the next three years, expect a module capacity constraint. And as such, supply and demand, should we expect that prices are not going to continue to drop, that this low 20s, uh, high 19, high teens is going to be the sort of the the touch and go, the touch and go. We're going to bump back up into the mid to high 20s in pricing. What's your uh, I'm not predicting on that? the price. Yeah, I'm not going to predict that pricing is going to jump by 50. percent I think that's um, that that's uh, that's unlikely to happen, but it will uh, affect the economics of uh, of some projects mm -hmm. that are slated. Assuming this forward cost curve was uh, just under right. linear direction. But I think the other piece of the equation, which we haven't touched on, which I also mm -hmm. see as a very important supply chain trend, is the ongoing increases in technology adoption. And that's where we see this. We've seen this shift 
from once again, you know, high three hundreds of modules now going to, you know, low fours, mid fours, and then 500 plus. It's just a question of where do you bid on uh, the technology curve for right. projects that are happening two, three, four years from now. And that's, that's part of the, uh, the nuanced approach is it's not just uh, a price equation. It's also for what product and or yeah. what circumstances and when are you going to receive that product? And part of that's yeah. happened because we've seen a, a, a dramatic change in the wafer size. And so the wafer platforms have changed from the traditional 156 and it's inched up to 158, 161, 166. And now you see variations of 182 and now 210. But you know the, the industry is really, I think, really trying to centralize on the, you know, the 182 uh, millimeter wafer form factor. And I think that's going to stay in place for a little while, ah, but okay. there's some that are, are still trying to migrate to 210. So what's going and then just also what size, studying, what size module what is, is that equate to for, for the, uh, un, 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 uh, indoctrinated? Uh, yeah. So, 180? so we're, we're, uh, so once again, when we, we see wafers at that size, then we're getting into the, the high fours, uh, 500 plus, uh, era depending on what cell technology is used. And so once again, these are the cell technology itself hasn't changed that dramatically, yeah. but, uh, but there are absolutely are, uh, are, are, there's product coming off the line today in the 450, 460 range. That's going to be in uh, 2021 projects. Uh, but you know, it's the migration of various lines from, um, you know, from the 161, 166 and different suppliers, mind you, uh, some have hesitated, others have jumped on board. And so they have various capacities at, uh, for each of these yeah. different levels. So yeah. they're trying to meet up with their previous projections they had made a year ago, which were already outdated, uh, but then also pl still plan for the future because a lot of these products are slated for 23 uh, and beyond. Are there any technology <laughs> advancements that your team's tracking that just kind of is got your mind buzzing for the possibilities for our industry that maybe uh, we like we didn't anticipate we'd get here that fast this that good I mean you know to be honest all the trends I'm talking about right now are directly coming from the mouth of our uh, uh, our technology and quality team but we are absolutely talking with the CTOs of all the major um, uh, major players in this sector you know one of the trends is not necessarily just about technology advancements but it's also about what's the overall dependability and and you know, resilience of the modules when they face certain climactic conditions. So once again, the hail test, as an example, they have kind of operated with a certain amount of glass thickness, but we're now seeing hail test results from the field uh, as, you know, hail is becoming increasingly a, a frequent natural occurrence in, uh, in markets like, uh, you know, like Texas. And so when you're looking at various ways that suppliers have of using, uh, you know, once again, a glass and glass module, it should have additional structural rigidity with the glass thickness you're going to. And the suppliers try to eke out and slim and the glass. A, and in a glass shortage. Exactly. Exactly. So there's, there's, it's, I would say, Nico, it's the, the issue is just the confluence of all these different factors. Yeah. Once again, the change in wafer sizes, the shift of bifacial, half cut, you're seeing the confluence of all these different factors, larger form factors happening at the same amount of time. And then once again, not just looking at it for, from a standpoint of, mm -hmm. Hey, this is the, this is the one path. You just have to you know, go down the tried and true path. And, and then mind you, we also have folks who safe harbored 
old racking systems and mounting structures based on the old form factor oh, and, and they yep. can't, they can't backward integrate. Right. And so there's changes and evolutions happening on inverters as well. That once again, everyone is now trying to tweak, adjust and saying, Hey, we bought this equipment with the expectation of what this would, you know, the module size it would be. And now the market's totally different. So how do we grow, adapt, tweak and evolve? And it's this constant effort of trying to, throwing the dart towards a board that's uh, on the back of a, of an 18 wheeler that's riding oh, on us on a uh, rough road. So, you know, it just, it's, it's very tough to be accurate uh, with all these changing variables and a yeah. constantly shifting world. Well, let's highlight another, uh, what we believe to be positive changing variable. And that is the incoming Biden administration. You and I have uh, lived through now two different, very different approaches, three, frankly, very different approaches to renewables. If we go all the way back to the Bush era, when you and I were just getting our, you know, cutting our teeth, I remember when Obama won and how we all were just, there was an unbridled enthusiasm for what we were getting ready to experience. Um, well, essentially, you know, same team is, uh, is going to be back in the White House. I'd love to hear your thoughts, as I'm sure you have to distill this often in, in conversations with your Asia counterparts and, and, and what do those conversations sound like for you and from your perspective? Help those of us who are here on, I'll call it the mainland, here domestically in the United States with your insight on what a Biden administration means for us, what uh, you anticipate, how should we be positioning ourselves? Is it going to be a tailwind for renewables? Is renewables going to win no matter who's in the office? That kind of thing. Look, I mean, I, I definitely believe uh, the, the 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 clarity in, on market growth and renewables is uh, you know doesn't deserve any reflection because we all know it's there. The Biden administration is likely going to continue to you know live out the campaign promises they made to further support you know renewable energy growth, and I, I think that's uh, that's great news. I am obviously very uh, very much a proponent of an optimized supply chain and an efficient supply chain. But I would say the market's already evolved to the current tariffs that are in place. So I actually don't foresee them uh, un unveiling any tariffs. Once tariffs are enacted, it's very hard to repeal them. So I don't expect there to be any changes. I do think there is going to be uh, some additional support for potential manufacturing uh, resurgence in the U.S. That's something I'm uh, aware of. Our teams are capable to, to, uh, to check and, and modify that work. But I will say... You know, my advice is it's very difficult to recreate entire supply chain on a cost yeah. basis, but let's focus on the areas where the U.S. is strong, and that's where it's what's going to deploying leading technologies and capabilities that are going to uh, lead to cost-effective uh, you know solutions in the in the field, and that's that's where uh, there there's a lot of effort uh, around storage. Uh, there's a lot of effort around innovations on the installation side. There's a massive industry and job growth creation around the work that we do and the technical advisory capacity, but many folks deploying solar and storage in, uh, you know, from an EPC standpoint. So I think those are areas where there's a ton of growth potential, and we will get more and more folks outside the industry who are cross-trained and can be brought into uh, the industry. So I think the, the path to economic recovery is absolutely with, uh, with renewables as part of the essential part of that platform. And I'm certainly excited for the Biden administration to take it over. But uh, we, uh, as an industry, will continue to grow evolve and, and evolve our, uh, whatever obstacles we face. I get that we won't likely see any new tariffs. I wonder, though, will we see any removal of uh, trade barriers? There is a, a lot of positive 
growth in the renewable sector just in the deployment of you know an optimized supply chain which mind you the current supply chain is optimized in southeast asia and korea uh, other regions around the world because of the tariffs that exist between china and the us right. i don't predict that the tariffs will go away because the process to repeal them is very convoluted and there's others right. who are fighting against that and uh, irrespective of that the existing supply chain that exists is we're in a great position to continue to lower prices continue to scale up those uh, that industry and allow for uh, that growth and that job growth to happen in the US as, as it's focused around you know sustainable you know deployment of, of solar and storage solutions so right. namely a lot of EPC growth and other supporting industries in that in that sector. I do think the Biden administration will consider uh, manufacturing job growth in the U.S. around the production of some of the core solar supply chain, but I would caution them to look at the efficacy of that investment. Namely, it's mm. a very high investment cost, billions and billions of dollars, yeah. not just around the solar module step itself, but around the various facets of the consumables that feed into that supply chain. So it's very difficult to build a 10 or 20 gigawatt supply chain overnight. It's even tougher to do it in three years or even in five years. Yeah. So rather than investing all that effort towards that, I would just say, let's try to release any of the obstacles that allow the industry to, to evolve. And instead, yeah. um, you know, let's, let's put uh, the resources around just allowing the industry to take over and, and take a, take this to the next yeah. step. And for those who aren't familiar with how the module supply chain in particular works in China, it's quite different than what we've historically done with module supply here in the U.S. There are entire campuses. Think of like the Googleplex on steroids where, you know, if you've ever seen a big industrial park, multiply that by about 100 and all of the glass supply is on campus, all all the way down to the folks that make the crates, the folks that make the pallets, the folks that make all of the little pieces Think about like the manufacturing we've been able to sustain for a century in Detroit that has slowly been piecemealed away from our country and it would take forever for us to rebuild it. Uh, that is the scale that Andy's referring to for those who don't who haven't. It's not obvious to you that in China, the way a module manufacturer is built is like a hub and spoke model and all of the suppliers are within a very short truck drive, ideally on campus. So that's what that's what we're referring to. Just you can't overnight get glass suppliers and pallet suppliers to move their factories alongside these new these lovely new uh, module factories in Syracuse or Buffalo or Mississippi. Correct. And aluminum. You know, once again, I mean, yeah. uh, we have a lot of glass and glass modules, but there's there's still a lot of modules that require aluminum frames. And yeah. so, I mean, just some of these basic components, you just don't recreate. And you just don't recreate one factory. You don't just build one factory to meet the needs. You yeah. have to have a competitive group of subcomponent suppliers. They're all fighting to improve mm -hmm. and optimize their costs and deliver yeah. a product that's uh, best in class for those those manufacturers. So you just can't create that industry overnight. Yeah, even the the gigantic steps that Hanwha and Jinko and others have made in the U.S. with their factories in Georgia and, and Florida, it's mostly focused on assembly. Right. We're bringing we're still bringing parts in by and large to to make that last step American made. That's really insightful. Uh, I bet there are a bunch of questions that uh, our 
very tuned in audience would have for you. So I invite folks, if you do have further questions for Andy, that you can shoot those over. He's super accessible and we'll get to how you can find Andy in a bit. But if you want uh, us to jump on, you know, and ask me anything, a LinkedIn live or something like that, where we can just pepper Andy with questions. I think that'd be fun. Kind of like put Andy in the dunk booth and we can bring on Paul and, uh, and, um, and just fire away at the supply chain. Cause I think that's a really fun thing. We may do that just for a tribe exclusive. In fact, Andy, just have folks jump on and ask you all the questions that are burning in their chest. Would you be open to that? Absolutely. would love to. And you know, once again, it, it's, uh, I think one key point to mention is this is not just uh, trends in solar, it's also energy storage. And so this is the other area where we're spending a lot of time and effort. We've actually seen a tripling of our energy storage business, but uh, storage is is going to be ubiquitous. Um, you know, it's pretty much linked with all PV system installations going in 22 and beyond. So uh, we're very much happy to have that, uh, have that dialogue and be a part of that trend. I want to turn the corner here uh, a minute spend a little bit more time asking some of the esoteric questions to get inside the head of you as an entrepreneur. You and I talk a lot about building business. Uh, we just sort of share thoughts and ideas. I really enjoy how you think about building companies. Is there anything that for you over time has become a truism about strategy or about uh, the fundamentals of business building? Yes, I think the one of the key uh, truisms about the, that particular topic, in fact, the strategy is strategy is not about what you choose to do; it's about what you choose not to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit, I'm uh, I'm the most uh, one of the optimistic folks who always believes in what everyone yeah. wants to say. But I uh, I want to jump into a lot of different areas. But in many cases, uh, I have to hold myself back and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay focused, mm-hmm. and that's where uh, we we chose to not diversify into wind. We, you know, stuck with uh, solar and storage uh, as yeah. our, our core business strategy, but we have new opportunities to grow and expand. And actually we're in that, uh, we're in that, strate- we're at the end of our strategic planning process, which we do around this time uh, for three months every year. But, uh, but there's a constant review and we have to say no to certain things uh, yeah. instead to stay focused. Yeah. I, I have a mentor who said, you can say yes to anything you want for next quarter. <laughs> right. It just can't be for this quarter. You got to put that plan in place. And for the next three months, you're committed. And that's for a rolling three months if you're planning properly. Right. And I think that alone, if you've got a good team around you, is good discipline to help those like yourself and I who are constantly getting peppered with options and ideas. And, and we see all the shiny objects and we want to run after them because we have this Superman complex of we can do everything and surround yourself with a good team, with a good culture and restriction to say, no, we, we can definitely say yes to lots of things. They just can't be tomorrow. Yeah. So one of the, uh, you asked me that question about what's different about CA today versus two years yeah. ago. And part of it is that we have uh, a, a very high level of discipline around uh, a stage gate, a new service offering uh, uh, you know, plan. And so mm. uh, our, our process uh, for looking at new service offerings is far more disciplined. We review a StageGate uh, product management framework that's uh, very common and well-known in the industry, and that's been very effective for us to review and evaluate new product or new service categories. So uh, I will say the, you know, one example uh, that we're actually going through uh, right now is on, uh, on green hydrogen, because we are getting multiple requests to support uh, the uh, determination of, of various supply chain options in China. And we actually do see green hydrogen as a key trend that's going to happen, you know, two, three, five years from now. 
but we're actually now over 2020, we've actually been building out expertise and knowledge of uh, various electrolyzer suppliers and building and institutionalizing some of that knowledge into our, our framework. And now we have a definitive offering to go to the market with um, you know, green hydrogen for those early stage developers that are adopting these new technologies. So, but it's about having a disciplined approach mm. to launching new product areas and categories. And that's where our technology and quality team uh, leads that effort. And we've had that group in place uh, for the last, uh, last period of time. Andy, you've been at this a long enough time to have pattern recognition and to have seen problems come and be resolved, some stick around, and to be able to forecast, to think about what we can do as an industry, some of that we've talked about here uh, in our chat. What do you believe right now is holding us back as an industry? And I'll say that in a different way, perhaps, of what corners are you as an executive in the industry looking around that you help your two plus trillion dollar market cap clients think through? Our clients are constantly looking for, you know, insight in terms of what's coming. I've shared a lot of that here on this, uh, this podcast, but they often are, are really, you know, customizing and, and bringing very deep probing questions around, you know, key trends and issues that range for a variety of topics. So some of it is about, uh, you know, the, Supply chain topics, you know, uh, that are related to regulatory conditions and and policy, but there's uh, plenty others that really come down to the basic blocking and tackling around, uh, you know, making cost estimates and understanding what's going on, actually in the factory as we as we, yeah. as we speak. And so, but are there fundamental problems that we've yet to resolve that are holding us back from going from you know less than five percent overall penetration to 50 plus percent overall penetration in the very, you know, in the next 10 years? Well, look, I, I mean, I think the industry is absolutely poised to to grow and, you know, it can increase, you know, quintuple or quadruple in the next 10 plus years. Uh, but it's what's going to happen at certain times, just like this current glass shortage, it's going to lead to slight uptick in pricing. It's going to surprise certain people who weren't forecasting this. And that's, uh, that's part of the uh, the uncertainty is you you come across areas where there's um, you know some adjustments. That's where I say on the path to getting to a five x or ten x the industry, you know, hitting fifty yeah. percent. There absolutely are going to continue to be supply chain issues, and no doubt. Yeah. But that's where I think you know having this ongoing monitoring of kind of key trends and being a being aware of how do you, do you know, divert resources and pivot and. And once again, and some of it's about you know pure, establishing deeper partnerships with suppliers. So many folks have operated under the traditional industry, just throw out an RFP and let a bunch of suppliers beat each other up yeah. at the lowest possible cost. And there's a very different way of, of that we approach uh, partnerships and working on different innovations and technical advances that uh, think about the deployment in terms of LCOE. I have no doubt that uh, solar and storage is a winning technology combination that's going to far surpass uh, deployment in thermal and a lot of other areas. So you're absolutely right that uh, we're still in the infancy of this growth to double-digit penetration. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I love to see the world at a 50-plus percent clip. So we get a lot of those questions and help to drive a lot of that, the, those strategic conversations. Let's have a little fun here as we wrap things up. I want to ask a few questions around what I call learning leadership and legacy, but also just get into uh, a bit of, so folks can have a bit more insight into the fun-loving Andy that all of us know when we hang out in, in real life, in person. 
What apart from your field of expertise are you most fanatical about? Oh, I, I would say my, um, and, and actually this goes to a question I know you often ask, so what book uh, have I read recently or what am I into? But I have, uh, I've read this uh, transformational book that has really influenced me and, and also my family. And that's called Positive Intelligence by Shirzad uh, Charmaine. So it's, uh, it's not a book that is in a typical uh, solar executive's uh, shelf. But I have um, uh, this past uh, year, you know, due to you know, the success of, of, of CA and our just overall growth profile, uh, qualified to, to join the, the YPO, the Young Presence Organization. And in the YPO uh, group, uh, there was this, um, this, this recommended book and program. And so actually, I, I read the book, uh, downloaded the app, and I've really, in the last uh, couple of months, really re rechained how I think about uh, handling certain situations. And I'm someone who uh, I just like that. As I said before, I've always been a very optimistic guy, but I definitely get down at certain points or mm-hmm. something negative happens. And I really reflect, I get caught in, um, in this kind of cycle of, of just inward introspection, reflection, like, you know, how do we overcome this obstacle, but really reframing my viewpoint on just every negative is a positive. And so I really, uh, I've shared this with my team and not only my team, my family. Uh, and so my wife has really commented how I've changed a lot. Uh, she wow. says, you know, I've always, uh, the most positive person at work, but then I, uh, I dump on her with a lot of negative, uh, issues, but I've actually trained uh, myself more effectively through, uh, various introspection and daily meditation, which I know you're, uh, we're both in that, that practice as well, but just mm-hmm. reframing the negatives or the obstacles we face and just say, Hey, this is a growth opportunity. I'm super excited that we're overcoming uh, this obstacle and just saying, we're going to overcome it. It's just a question of how. And so, uh, and various disciplines within the work we we do, we do come across some, some obstacles and issues, but look, it's always a chance to get better. Every time we've had a slip up, we have said like, okay, how do we, how do we overcome this? And how do we develop better systems and processes to, to improve as a company? And so, this book, Positive Intelligence, is one that I'm a, a big uh, advocate of, and it just reframing positive thinking and, and really, I'd say, uh, working with the, the team on, uh, on, on overcoming obstacles in a different uh, frame of mind. Mm. That's a great answer, by the way. I love it. I love that you immediately go to the latest way that you've been learning. All my, uh, well, not just my family, but my, uh, all my psychologists just think I'm crazy. I just read a lot of books, but mm-hmm. it's just that, uh, that ongoing, uh, drive to, uh, to improve and yeah, yeah, continuously learning. It's that unending curiosity that's, uh, that's yeah. at work, uh, not just with me, but a lot of others as well. What are you the terriblest at? Uh, I mean, the, one of the things I'm the worst on is, uh, is, is getting, uh, getting enough sleep. So, uh, just the pace at which I run, is quite hard on, uh, especially during the week, but uh, there's just so many exciting developments. I have a hard time uh, dialing it down. And uh, particularly just because I have a lot of affinity for my team in the US, uh, but just mm. also constantly talking to customers that yeah, I often all, you're get always, caught up your later in. business is always on. Exactly, the business is always on. I, you know, We work in, with clients all around the world. Since spending six months in the, in the US this year, actually I, during COVID, I, I was very disciplined about my sleep because I was a, a little fearful for my own health. And so actually I found I was actually one of the healthiest periods because I really made myself go to bed earlier. I took less calls with Asia and uh, concentrated on the U.S. Now that I'm back in Asia, 
And uh, I must comment, I, I went through six COVID tests and a, a whole uh, multi-month process of scrutiny. Uh, there's a, a side story I could tell you where our, our passports were sent to the Houston consulate uh, two days before right. Trump shut the Houston consulate down. So we had a lot of uncertainty with coming back to China. But uh, I will generally say on the ground, China is very, very strict uh, about uh, who they let in. There have been yeah. a few cases of kind of squeak through, but they're all clamped down immediately. But um, they're really this is the the epitome of a of a post COVID world, and I'm very confident yeah. that we'll go wow. um, we'll ramp up this vaccine, and everywhere will be the same. But uh, but there's uh, now that I I'm not worried about any threat for my uh, my myself or my family. Kids are in school. Now I can go back to my old routine and push it pretty hard and, and sleep all less than what I should. So, so no, no masks yeah, exactly. and, and whatnot generally in the streets in China. It's pretty uh, normal. So there are there are masks there are masks around. Uh, I'd say the first two months I was here, there were no masks uh, unless you went into the subway or you uh, flew on a plane or took a train. And I, I haven't been traveling, so I didn't use them at all. Then there were a couple of cases that that came in. And there's a trickle of folks who are caught in the airport and they get court. You know, we went through a very stringent quarantine where we actually had a sensor on our door and we literally could not open our wow. door, let alone um, go outside of our home. And I, I was what? happy to home quarantine with my my four kids. So, yeah, uh, things that couldn't couldn't fly in the West uh, here in China, they, they happen. But that's wow. how they managed to contain the virus. But uh, about a month or so ago, there was one case, I think, that came in on a on a piece of. Uh, but something that was uh, that was flown in, I think it was uh, some um, some food that had uh, been packaged. Uh, there was a COVID case, so they they issued a, a warning in this. They went to an immediate lockdown in this whole area near the airport where uh, that happened. So about a month ago, some more people been wearing masks. Uh, so you still see masks on the street, but you know now that we're in December, some people are saying they're just wearing it because it, it keeps a little warmer. So, uh, but everyone is is very aware of uh, the, chan the the rally, we're not fully out of uh, COVID-19, yeah. but uh, it is a post-COVID world in my mind here in China. Uh, you mentioned that sleep is uh, hard to come by these days. Do you have a specific morning or evening routine that you try to hold faithful to? Oh, absolutely. So even though I, I may go to bed late, I still stick with my 5 a.m. Uh, wake-up call. And then I have, um, you know, after reading, uh, and I've, I've had a number of uh, routines related to uh, uh, to meditation every morning, but um, uh, a year or two ago, after reading James Clear's book on uh, Atomic Habits, Atomic I habits, basically yeah. introduced the ha the habit stacking concept, and so mm -hmm. I immediately uh, I go from my meditation to my gratitude journal. I have a stretching exercise. I have uh, my uh, positive intelligence routine that I uh, I mentioned also involves a, a small mm -hmm. exercise on the app that I use. And so there's about uh, six or seven different things that I do in sequence. But I usually start at five because uh, that's prior to my meeting starting at, at 530 or six. And so it just really starts off my day with a, a lot of energy. And the other thing I've been doing for the last five years is various types of fasting routine. But I will definitely say uh -huh. if I had to point to one thing that was a game changer is the, the frequency and the routine and discipline around fasting. So I just finished a 51 hour fast last week. Uh, okay. But I now do a, a two-day fast uh, once a month, and then uh, usually once a year I'll do a, an extended fast beyond just two days. And so that's, um, but you know, my just my typical routine is is intermittent fasting, or really it's time-restricted feeding, 
where right. I'll just eat within a window of what is that window? Uh, I'm know, looking for the details, man. Six hours. Oh, so so yeah, it's like pretty much fast. I'll either have uh, a late lunch and then combination with that with an early dinner, or sometimes I'll just do lunch and afternoon. Snack. So you're looking for a daily but, aut- yeah, autophagy, yeah. or are you looking for, or do you save that for once a month? Uh, so actually, I say that for once a month. So actually, uh, so I, I've got a, a variety of routines. So I generally do intermittent fasting every day, which is either uh, uh, 18-6 or 16-8. Or, uh, mm-hmm. So it'll just eat within a six-hour window or an eight-hour window. But then twice a week, I do a 24-hour fast. So that's yeah. my normal routine. The the additional benefits of autophagy happen really after 24 hours. So that's when your your uh, glucose level drops, and you effectively your body is effectively eating, you know, feeding off of your fat stores. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where I, I get into that once a month uh, yeah. with a, a two day fast. And so did, did I hear you right that you do a, less than my routine. You do a twenty four hour fast twice a week. Uh, correct. So basically Mondays and Fridays, uh, I'll do a, a basically I'll eat Sunday evening, and then I'll eat Monday evening. And then on Thursday, I may finish it late afternoon and then I'll break my fast, uh, you know, uh, Friday, uh, you know, Friday night for dinner. You know, there's there's a lot of bread and studied on this topic, but I, I really do believe I have higher levels of energy. It's also lead to health, uh, just greater levels of health. And uh, I anyone think who knows much you greater is like, mental clarity. Anyone who knows you has been spending time with you. You have like off the charts energy. So. <laughs> take, take it from me that um, this is something that you want to look into if you're struggling with energy. I tell my coaching clients all the time, have you considered fasting? Have you considered meditating? Do you stretch? <laughs> Do you stand or sit? There's a whole lot of ways you can go through checklists of like, why are you? All right, now let's look at your diet. Oh, you don't track your diet. Okay, let's start there. <laughs> is there anything that you have read or refer people to to learn more about fasting? Uh, or is it just sort of a confluence, you know, many years of study? Is there like, or do you have a guide or a? I, look, I mean, I, I do use uh, I do use an app that uh, that tracks fasting, so that's that's kind of been my my go to. Uh, it's I've called, heard, it's called Zero. Zero. So right. Zero is what I is what I use. But if you uh, if you do any listening of uh, podcasts, I mean, Peter Atia has a ton of great mm-hmm. work uh, yep. out there. But um, but look, I mean, it, I've, I've just it's easier just to, to hack that process. Go listen to his interviews by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I first got into Peter Atia through Tim Ferriss, but you know, you can listen, Peter Atia has his own, uh, own podcast and he's, yeah. he's, uh, he's, he's got deep, a lot of uh, books and information that's out there. So deep rabbit hole, but it's yeah, wealth absolutely. of information. I am a quotes guy. A lot of folks don't, um, don't recognize or don't realize that, but I read a lot, but I also am a collector of quotes. If somebody says, what do you collect? It's quotes. I've ideated about what my office would be if I didn't work uh, from a home office and could like line the halls with quotes. I know exactly what would go on those halls and what I would, I mean, I gift people things that have quotes on them. Any, any quotes in particular that you hold dear? Yes, there actually is one, and there's uh, a couple different people I'd attribute this to, but uh, James Clear uh, mm-hmm. uh, tells one that, once again, we don't rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our habits. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Tim Ferriss has a derivation on that uh, as basically systems-level thinking. It's the same thing, but effectively saying, you know, you fall to the level of your systems. But whatever your habits are, whatever your systems you're going to fall in default back to that. You're not going to going to just rise to what goals you have. So when I have my own personal goals or aspirations, or I, uh, you know, we have goals with the company, it's like, what is the, what is the system and the habits that we're building that are going to allow us to achieve that, uh, that goal. That's what allows us to have a lot of consistent quarter on quarter growth and, uh, and expansion. So 
when I heard that quote, I, it, it just really stuck with me. The other quote uh, that I love uh, comes from Richard Banson and is, um, it really is related to culture. And he said, mm-hmm. give the training and development so your team can go anywhere, but create a culture where they don't want to. So yeah. um, uh, he's got a more elegant way of more concise way of putting it, but uh, I, I would effectively say the same thing. You know, we, we have an amazing team at CA and they could all go and do ama- many amazing things on their own. But the reason they choose to stay is because of the culture we have and the opportunities they're getting uh, within CA. Train people well enough so they can leave, but treat them well enough so they don't want to. Man, where and how can people find you? Uh, you are in many ways ubiquitous, yet you're in China and, and hard to reach. Is, are there, do you want to give folks ways that they can reach out to you and contact if they want to? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me. Um, the worst way is uh, email, so I won't uh, won't get that out. But I uh, I do respond to to LinkedIn, and uh, generally once I I get to know someone new, I, I give them my cell because I uh, yeah I prefer text more than anything else. So, uh, but text, uh, WhatsApp. He's he's on way. all the chats. I know that for sure. I'm not on WeChat, but I know WeChat's super popular over there, and WhatsApp for me. Um, I really admire how hard you work at relationships. And I think that at SEA, you have an organizational culture of follow-up that is second to none, and it's from the top down. So I just want to edify you because I've, I don't know that I've ever met a CEO who is so good at follow-up um, and who has his systems dialed at least so well that every time you reach out to me, it feels... And I know that we're friends, but it still feels like, wow, Andy reached out. Like, and, it's, and it's not infrequent, right? It's once a quarter. It's, it's often enough that it feels like very little time has passed. Is that something that you are hyper-intentional about as to, so it's such that it is now a habit, something you had to work towards? I, I guess it's just, uh, it, it's, to be honest, it's just something, um, I, I mean, I, I've reflected on... I, I well, one, one, first of all, I, I just love giving back. Um, I love uh, dialogues with, uh, with everyone on the team, but especially the, you know, more junior team members. Uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, my cadence of having a, this five QI, five questions internal, I, I constantly ask, but I also do, uh, 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 we have a separate mentorship program. I take on two mentees every quarter and we have wow. a program we run through, but actually I, I just, literally the other day, just grabbed uh, a handful of folks in my, uh, in my office here in Shanghai. I said, Hey guys, happy to talk about whatever. Uh, Cause I remember what it was like in your shoes early on yeah. in my career, not having a clear mentor. And I reached out to the CEOs of a, a couple of early stage companies back even when I was an intern at first USA working yeah. in Wilmington, Delaware, I met the CEO uh, at an intern conference. I was like, that left a deep impression to me. So I guess I've always just had this desire to be able to give back. And I've had a lot of people who really helped me in, along the way in my journey. So any way that I can give back to the CA family and, and really the, the broader, you know, solar community at large, I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful. I try to jump in, uh, but I, I wish I could be as responsive uh, to everyone, but that's part of the reason I've, uh, uh, I've just always kind of pushed myself to just keep thinking, how can I help and uh, and benefit others for the sake of the industry moving forward? Okay, penultimate question for you, Andy. How can the Suncast audience help? 
Uh, look, I, I think the number one thing that uh, the Sun, uh, Suncast audience can help is just once again, I think, driving the awareness of the importance of quality in every facet of a solar and storage deployment. Uh, I will say it just mystifies me that how uh, particularly the U.S. solar industry operates compared to other sectors. And we have many clients in India, and I will say the Indian solar market, 99.9% of all components that go to India from, from China or elsewhere, they are all scrutinized very heavily. And so it still amazes me that we don't have effectively 100% adoption of, uh, of really stringent, independent third-party quality assurance work in the industry. So I think just the awareness, the importance of, of quality in your installation is, uh, is something that everyone in the Suncast audience should, uh, should be aware of and thinking not just for solar, but also for energy storage as well. Landy, as we round out what has been for me an absolutely uh, fantastic gem of uh, a second interview with you, we've got the same question you had to ask two years ago. Let's end today with a bold prediction. Andy, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What else is in your crystal ball? So I think the proliferation of technology advancements and ongoing cost declines uh, leads me to say, look, there is going to be a, a period of time where we're going to see solar modules costing less than uh, 10 cents a watt and also being more than one kilowatt per module. We're probably going to hit the one kilowatt per module uh, number first. We've already seen the eclipsing 500 watts and uh, 600 watt product. But I, I do see this happening in the next, you know, put it in the range of, of two to four years. We won't be able to get to uh, less than a dime a watt uh, with current regime of tariffs in place. I do think tariffs uh, may come out uh, in five years. But I think the, the pure play cost of that uh, technology advanced you know, 1,000 watt product uh, will get to uh, less than 10 cents a watt. And I think it's just going to continue to open up more and more markets for uh, for solar adoption. Whoever's not watching the video can't see my jaw on the table. You're saying we're going to have a kilowatt module in the next four years? Yes, uh, I do believe that. It, look, we can actually have it today, but the form factor won't be optimized. It sounds like mean, SunFab could have done it years ago. But. <laughs> so, oh, for sure, for sure. But, uh, you know, once again, it's that, it's that question of can you have uh, a small enough form factor where you can have, you know, two laborers mounting this on a, a racking structure so it's, that it's cost optimized. And, and yes, I, I do see that. Uh, I see that happening because there's still is going to be ongoing advances in cell efficiency. We've seen the larger form factors now shift in wafering. I think we're in a, a mode where I think we're going to start to see some stability for the next three years on the current, you know, 182 architecture. But I think beyond that, uh, when we look at the next level of innovation, it's going to be another CapEx cycle. I think when we get to that five-year point, we'll really be seeing modules that are, are significantly uh, larger and then, once again, uh, deployed at uh, 1,000 know, 1, watts per module. There you have it, Solar Warriors. I don't know if your mind is uh, racing right now with the possibilities, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what changes about the way you do business and the way business can be done when you have a one kilowatt solar module. Lots of other things for us to explore, Andy. Another plenty of fodder for round three. Hopefully it doesn't take another two years, brother. Thank you for taking the time instead of setting aside a large chunk 
of your day for us to get through a wonderful interview. Great to have you back on the show, man. Awesome. Fantastic, Nico. It's always a lot of fun. And my best to uh, all the other Solar Warriors uh, listening on the audience. So look forward to staying in touch. All right, Solar Warrior. I am certain that your ears are dripping with goodness and learning and knowledge and that your brain is oozing over with expansion. Andy, I so appreciate you, brother, that you are willing to give of your brain trust that you're willing to trust us to lean in, to share how you structure your day and your life. If you were inspired by this as I was, please give Andy a shout over on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find him on all the socials. You can find all of his socials at mysuncast.com. Just click on the blog link, the show notes link, and you can find resources and highlights, all the things that we touched on here on today's episode, as well as links to his social media so that you can, in fact, reach out to Mr. Andy Klump. And if you really do love these kinds of stories and dive it into the story of someone who has built a massive business, well, you're going to want to come back next Thursday, as we do every Thursday. And listen to the story of Mr. Sheldon Kimber of Intersect Power. Two titans, two weeks in a row. We keep them coming here on Suncast, and I hope that you will keep on coming back. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Mm -hmm.